Church, the king is coming. You may be seated. We are so excited for this Christmas season as pastors to preach this series, The King of Christmas, because the king truly is the greatest gift. And we as pastors know that to have a right understanding of the king and his power and glory is to have hope for today. So this morning, we want to put the king before you in all of his splendor. And we're going to do that with a Christmas message, unlike one I'm sure that you've never heard before. So with that, please open up your Bible to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. And as you're opening there, I want to ask a question. Does anyone else not like unfinished stories like me? I can't stand an unfinished story. The Chronicles of Narnia is a beloved series from Christian author C.S. Lewis. It's just one of the best fantasy series of all time. It's sold over 100 million copies. And trying to capitalize on this success and bring these beloved books to a modern audience on the screen, Disney and Walden Media partnered together to bring The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And that was a wonderful movie, did so well in introducing these stories to a new audience. And then they were going to keep going all the way through the seven books. They went on to the next movie, Prince Caspian. However, it vastly underperformed. It made about half of what the first movie made. And Disney got scared. They dropped out of production. Walden Media was on their own for the third. Then they released The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it underperformed, and that was it. What started out as this promising cinematic journey that we were going to get all seven movies, only three were made, four remain unmade. There's an unfinished cinematic story, which is a huge bummer because I love this series. Beyond stories, no one likes things that feel unresolved. No one likes the unresolved feeling of conflict with a family member. No one likes the unresolved feeling of longing for God to save a loved one. Oh God, please just save them. No one likes the unresolved feeling of waiting on a new job or a new client. And no one likes the unresolved story of anxiously awaiting a big medical update. Many of you are in these situations right now. Just like there are unresolved circumstances, there is an unresolved story in human history. Because over 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God added to himself human nature to save humanity from their sin. This is the true story of Christmas, and it's all about Jesus living a perfect life of obedience, dying on the cross for our sin, taking the wrath of God that we deserve in our place. He died, but it didn't end there. He rose again, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father in power. And as Jesus' disciples were gazing into the heavens upon Jesus' ascension, two angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Church, this Jesus who came the first time is coming again. 
Therefore, Christmas is an unfinished story. It's an unresolved story. The Christmas story is not complete until the return of the King. And that's the title of this morning's message, The Return of the King. Let's look at this glorious King in His coming return. Stand with me in Revelation 19, starting with verse 11. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Merry Christmas, Central Church. You may be seated. (laughs) Friends, the king is coming. And this message is so timely because it beckons us not to lose heart, not to fall prey to discouragement, not to fall into unfaithfulness to our king because we can have hope. The king is coming. The king reigns now, and he is returning. The first time Jesus came, he said, it is finished regarding the payment of our salvation. But friends, there's coming a time where he will once more say, it is finished. But this time to all sin, to all suffering, to all sorrow, and to Satan. It is my prayer this morning that the picture of the returning king who reigns now, that his return will overwhelm you with present hope, enduring strength, and lasting faithfulness and love to him, the king. We need this message today because this letter, Revelation, was given to churches that were struggling and being tempted to forsake their king. They were tempted with persecution They were tempted with complacency, with materialism, with idolatry, and with self-sufficiency. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ gave his apostle John these visions in Revelation so that churches struggling, being tempted to forsake the king, would endure, would have hope. These visions, which included the return of Christ, final judgment, and the glorious new heavens and earth, is a message to fill us with hope, to endure, and to be faithful. Don't give up. Look to the king who reigns and is returning. And just like the recipients of this letter, in this fallen world, we too are tempted to forsake Christ. So this message is for us. Have hope. The king is coming. Are you feeling the weariness of this fallen world this morning? Well, this message encourages you to look up and endure. The king is coming. Are you distracted by materialism this Christmas season? Well, this message encourages you to stop desiring stuff and start desiring the Savior. The king is coming. Are your priorities off in life? Are you putting off what God's word calls you to do? Well, this message exhorts you to put God's word before you and to walk in it. The king is coming. Are you rebellious toward God and worshiping yourself this morning? Well, this message calls you to repent, believe in the gospel, and give your exclusive loyalty to Jesus Christ, the king who reigns and is coming. You know, much of our troubles in life come because we do not take into consideration the reign of the king and his return. We live defeated lives because we do not meditate on the reigning and returning king like we should. Well, no longer, beloved, no longer. It's time to get our eyes off this fallen world and to look to the king and his glorious return. Did you know that the entire Bible is the anticipation of the coming of the king to make all things right? That's the entire Bible. This begins with the creation of humanity in the book of Genesis. Adam was supposed to lead the human race in worship, but instead he led us in rebellion. And a curse was put on creation. And though this curse came, God in his grace gave a promise to Satan where he declared in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Many theologians have called this the first gospel. And though sin would bring about perpetual conflict for humanity, it would all end with the seed of the woman delivering the crushing blow. And we ask, who is the seed of the woman? Well, history continues with the promise of a king. In Genesis 17 and Genesis 35, God promises to Abraham and Jacob that kings shall come from them. On Jacob's deathbed in Genesis 49, God revealed that the scepter and ruler's staff would come from the tribe of Judah and never depart. And wondrously, this kingship would not be limited to the 12 tribes, but would extend to the obedience of the peoples everywhere. A nationwide rule of the king. As promised, kings do arise in Israel. And in the Davidic covenant, God promises to establish the throne of David's kingdom forever. 
But as we look in history, we see that all of the kings ultimately fail to lead Israel and the nations to worship the one true God. The message becomes clear. A merely human king will not do. Sin has rendered them all hopeless and incapable. We desperately need a sinless king, a divine king. You know, kings were everything in the ancient world. An immoral king led to an immoral nation. An incompetent king led to a suffering nation. A militarily weak king led to a conquered nation. Only a strong king formed a strong nation. And in hope, Psalm 2 gives a promise of a strong king, a messianic king appointed by the Father himself. According to Psalm 2, this king will rule in Jerusalem. This king will have the nations as his inheritance. This king will break wicked kings with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. And this king will bless all who honor him. He'll bless all who take refuge in him. Now that's a king. This king has always been the hope of God's people. And Israel goes through its darkest season when both the northern and southern kingdoms are taken captive. They're sent into exile. Eventually, Judah is allowed to come back to Jerusalem by their captives. They're able to reinstate a temple. However, they're unable to reinstate a king. They have their temple, but they have no king. And under Roman rule, it looked like God's promises had failed until interstage left Jesus of Nazareth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Surely this is the promised king who will overthrow the Roman Empire, who will sit on the throne in Jerusalem, who will usher in the long-awaited millennial kingdom, and who will lead the nations in worship. Surely this is him. But wait, this king didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This king didn't teach combat, He taught compassion. This king didn't train a division. He trained disciples. There was no montage. Let's get down to business to defeat the Romans. There was none of that. This king didn't run to the palace. He ran to the poor. This king taught, performed signs, made disciples. One of them betrayed him. And then he died a death reserved for the worst of Roman criminals. What happened to the king who would destroy wicked kings? What happened to the king who would make the nations his inheritance and bless all who take refuge in him? Talk about a messianic letdown. But before disappointment could set in, Jesus rose from the dead. And the suffering servant, though appearing defeated, proved to be victorious God by the power of his resurrection. During his first coming, Jesus defeated death and purchased salvation for his people, ushering in the new covenant. Then he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sent his spirit to indwell his people, the church, and he promised to come back again. The church lives between these two 
comings of Christ the King. This is why Christmas is an unfinished story. Today, skeptics ask, where is his promised coming? Well, Revelation 19 answers, here he is. And in this passage, I want to look at three ways that we need to live in response to the return of the king. If you're taking notes this morning, our first point in response to the return of the king, we need to concede to the coming Christ. We need to bow to him. We need to submit to him. We need to concede to his coming. It's happening whether you like it or not. Look at this coming Christ in Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some of you walked in this morning expecting a Christmas message about the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths. Instead, you have the picture of King Jesus wearing a robe dipped in blood, and you're asking, who is this guy? Hi, my name is Pastor Greg. It's nice to meet you. This is what we're about here at Central Church, the King. Hang with me. If you're struggling to relate this Revelation 19 imagery to the baby Jesus, to the meek and mild carpenter, and to the Prince of Peace, good, good. That means God is doing something incredible here this morning. He is updating your understanding of Jesus so that it will be a more faithful picture of who he is in truth, the conquering king. This is so important to get right. The reason why we need this passage is because there are so many people who profess Christ but deny who he is in truth, a conquering king who comes to judge the world in righteousness. One individual who denies such a king writes, it is right to conclude that there is no such thing as an eternal hell of fire awaiting the damned in the afterlife. This individual writes that, Shifting to a more progressive version of Christianity, which by the way is not Christianity at all, but he says, making this shift has made him see that life is more about compassion than it is judgment, more about inclusion than gatekeeping. He goes on to say, in my opinion, Jesus was a pacifist, a non-violent, resistant fighter. Friends, according to the Bible, this is not the Christian view of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this view is what I call pinata Jesus. Pinata Jesus. Everybody's heard of pinata Jesus. Pinata Jesus has no hell, has no wrath, has no judgment for the wicked and for the rebellious. Pinata Jesus is best buddies with everyone. And pinata Jesus exists to support your every desire and to tell you how amazing you are. 
Sounds wonderful, but there's one problem. Pinata Jesus is not the true Jesus. Pinata Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. Pinata Jesus cannot deliver you from your sins. He can only destroy you in your sins. The reason this view is called Pinata Jesus is because it is a hollow shell of error that needs to be smashed. Next time someone in your life tries to make the argument for Pinata Jesus, Take them to Revelation 19 and smash this false Christ into pieces. Revelation 19 is the baseball bat to pinata Jesus. Friends, the true Christ is a conquering king. He is faithful. He is true. These titles in verse 11, faithful and true, they highlight the steadfastness of the Savior. He is the one who is faithful. Faithful. He is the one who is trustworthy in fulfilling his promises, and he is the true Messiah announced from the ancient of days. Isn't it true that Christ has proven himself faithful in every aspect of his life? He has been faithful to us in every aspect of our lives, even when we sin. Christ is faithful in eternity past. He was faithful in his incarnation, and he will be faithful in his second coming. Now let's compare the two comings of the king, shall we? To present before you the coming king, let's compare his two comings. The first time Jesus came, he came riding on a donkey. But now he is riding a royal white horse to behold The first time Jesus came to be judged by Roman and Jewish officials, but now he comes to judge the nations in righteousness. By the way, judging in righteousness is such an important term in the Old and New Testament because it communicates the fundamental difference between God and man. God is righteous and we are not. We need the righteousness of another through faith alone in his son, Jesus Christ. God is righteous, and apart from faith in Christ, we are not. The first time Christ came, we pierced him. When he returns, the eyes of the righteous one will pierce everyone who looks upon him. When verse 12 talks about Christ's eyes being like a flame of fire, this is speaking of the eyes of the righteous Christ searching out his enemies with his righteous eyes and piercing them. You know when you can't look someone in the eyes because of your guilt? Like, you know what you've done, they know what you've done, and it makes it impossible to make eye contact. Imagine what it will be like for sinners to look into the eyes of the returning and righteous Christ when they are searched out and found guilty. As one author said, a guilty conscience makes cowards of us all. Nothing is hidden from his sight. The first time Jesus came wearing a crown of thorns, now he is wearing many diadems, which are crowns worn by royalty. In the ancient Near East, it was common for kings to collect the crowns of other kings that they conquered. It was a sign of their victory. It was a sign of their sovereignty and now owning the land and the subjects of the king that they they conquered. Wearing one would symbolize one's sovereignty. The pharaohs of Egypt would wear a double crown if they ruled both lower and upper Egypt. But friends, look here what we see. Jesus is wearing many crowns, picturing that he rules a kingdom beyond number. 
He is the king who conquers every king. Their crowns belong to him. The first time Jesus came, he was stripped of his garments. Now he wears a robe dipped in blood, signifying judgment and victory. The picture here is of Christ, the warrior and the conqueror of evil. He's pictured as wearing the blood of his enemies before the battle even begins. What a terrifying picture. That would be like Christ descending, holding a tombstone with his enemies' names written on it before the battle begins. Terrifying. The first time Jesus came, he was arrested and he refused to summon legions of angels. Now he comes surrounded by the armies of heaven. The king rides forth with a glorious army. And I appreciate Warren Wiersbe's commentary that the army is the Old Testament saints, the church, and the angels all accompanying their king. It's important to note here that Jesus doesn't need an army. In fact, if you read this event, the army does absolutely nothing. This is less of an army and more of an audience. Behold, righteous ones, behold the conquering king. The first time Jesus came to be struck down, now he comes to strike down the rebellious nations and to rule them with a rod of iron. And Psalm 2 gives commentary on this. To be ruled by a rod of iron is to be totally destroyed, like iron smashing a potter's vessel and being dashed into pieces total destruction to the enemies of God. The first time Jesus came, he restrained Peter from using a sword against his betrayers. Now he comes with his very word as a sharp sword by which he slays his enemies. The first time Christ came to drink the cup of God's wrath on behalf of his people, now he comes to tread the winepress until every drop of God's wrath is poured out on the wicked. The first time Jesus came, there was no room for him. But the second time he comes, there is no room for sin. Before he was mocked as the king of the Jews, now he is worshipped as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Note that these are visible titles. They're written on his robe and on his thigh. Do you know what would normally be on the thigh of a warrior? It would be the sword. The sword would be where the thigh is. But here we see that Jesus needs no sword. His names are the weapon. Church, Jesus is not a baby in a manger anymore. The suffering servant is now the victorious king. He truly is the eternal son of God made flesh. And upon his arrival, his enemies will tremble and they will all bow to him. This Christmas season, you need to refresh your picture of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that we need to exchange our nativity scenes for this scene, though I'm curious what that inflatable Christmas decor would look like. (laughs) But we need to make sure that Christmas does not hide the identity of the king. It's so easy to look at the nativity scenes and Christmas decor and to miss the identity of the king, the conqueror. This picture of the coming king is so important because it is this picture that stirs up proper worship and adoration. 
It's this picture that will give you hope in your despair. It's this picture that will encourage faithfulness and allegiance to the king. It's this picture that will empower your evangelism. It's this picture that communicates what's best for you. And what's best for you is this. Give your complete allegiance to the king. Have hope. The king is coming. And we need to concede to his coming. Our second point this morning is we not only need to concede to the coming Christ, but we also need to confess the inward criminal. This passage has a bunch of criminals. Let's look at them in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Can you imagine seeing the king return in his glory and the instinct of the wicked is to make war with him? That is just the epitome of foolishness. And the birds are called by an angel to hover overhead. And this hovering prey implies the imminence of the doom that is about to come. In light of the coming king, the beast, who is the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, they should have chosen silence. They should have chosen submission. But instead, they foolishly choose to skirmish. Notice in this passage, the birds obey, but the wicked kings do not. Talk about bird brains. Have you ever experienced a dumb protest? In November of 1983, the Cabbage Patch Kids were all the rage. They were so in demand, but they were scarce. And riots broke out across stores. Christmas shoppers demanded this dolls so much that there were protests, enraged crowds, people finding baseball bats in the aisles and beating other people to get these dolls. There was trampling and even full-grown adults were ripping these dolls out of the hands of little children. Talk about a crazy protest. Well, as dumb as the Cabbage Patch protest is, What we see in Revelation 19 is the dumbest protest of all time, the creature making war against their creator. Sin and Satan has so tainted the minds of fallen humanity that their response to seeing the glorified Christ surrounded by the armies of heaven is to wage war against him. Which reminds us that our sin and our our stubbornness is a dreadful thing. Our sin has horrific consequences on our minds, on our reasoning, on our choices. Commenting on the state of the sinner in Ephesians 4.18, the Apostle Paul writes that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Which brings us to a sobering reminder this morning that if you are rebelling, against Christ. You have a hardness of heart that puts you in the ranks of the dumbest protest in human history, the reign of the king. People who rebel against God are not in their right mind. 
Their minds are so dark in understanding. Their lives are so alienated from the life of God. Their hearts are so hard that when they see the light of the world, the first thing they want to do is extinguish him. This was certainly the case at the beginning of the Christmas story. What did humanity do the first time the eternal Son of God came in the person of Jesus Christ? Well, they mocked him, they beat him, they spit on him, and they crucified him. Friends, this is foolish hatred for Christ that marks the sinner. This is no different from the middle of the Christmas story where we find ourselves right now. Today, what does humanity do when Christ's people testify of him? Well, they mock Christians, they threaten them, and they kill them. And by doing so, they persecute Christ. When my wife and I were doing ministry in Louisville, Kentucky, we were part of a sidewalk counseling ministry that went to men and women to implore them to choose life for their child, but also life in Jesus Christ. We would share the gospel. We would offer ourselves, our hearts, any resources that we could give them to help them along their journey, beckoning them from a place of death and calling them to a place of life. And whenever the name of Christ would come up, people would get particularly angry. In fact, our last time there before moving here, we were there and I was talking with a man and woman. And when I started sharing the gospel, the man got so upset that he charged me and he picked up the closest thing that he could find, which just so happened to be a traffic cone. And he held that traffic cone overhead and he said, I'm going to beat you to death with this. And I thought, oh Lord, is this how it goes? I could see the headlines now, local evangelists beaten to death by a traffic cone. (laughs) Friends, this this is hatred for Christ. The wicked hated Christ in his incarnation. The wicked hate Christ living through his people now. The wicked will hate Christ when he returns, even as he returns in glory. The Christmas story is marked with hatred for Christ at its beginning, middle, and end. Where do you find your heart this Christmas season? Do you love Christ? Do you live in light of the reign and return of the King? Do you long for his return? Or do you rebel against him in your heart? The return of the King summons every person high and low, rich and poor, to confess the inward criminal. The problem of sin equalizes us all in our sin. We're not in our right mind. We rebel against the King. We must confess our rebellion and turn to the King. You can resist this confession. However, it will do you no good. Christ's enemies are powerless against him. And this should fill us, God's people, with strength. Have hope. The king is coming. So in light of Christ's return, we need to concede to the coming Christ. We must confess the inward criminal. And finally, we need to celebrate the sure consummation. We need to celebrate the sure consummation. Friends, Christ is coming again. The one who reigns is returning. This is a sure thing. We need to celebrate this. Let's look how it all ends. Verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Church, in the end, Christ wins. In the end, Christ wins. Amen. Amen. The beast and his false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. And if you're wondering who these figures are, the beast is the Antichrist. The false prophet is an accomplice who demonically does signs and wonders to convince others that the Antichrist is God. He convinces other people to worship this Antichrist. And those who worship the Antichrist are given the mark of the beast. These two figures are human beings who are demonically empowered and indwell, and together they are the political and religious leaders of the world during the tribulation. But look what happens to these leaders. They gather the wicked kings to lead them in battle, but before the battle even begins, they are snatched up and thrown into the lake of fire. The two leaders are thrown into the fire before the battle even begins. The army has lost its commanders. Then look at what happens to the army, those who hate Christ. I just want to make a couple of very encouraging notes on how this battle goes down. The first thing is that the wicked kings, those who rebel against Christ, they don't experience battle. They experience execution. Don't let Satan deceive you. No one compares to the might of our king. No one compares to the might of our king. You can gather together all the wicked kings of the earth and their nations, but none of them can wage war with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Another thing to note here is that the only weapon used in this battle is the word of Christ. That's the only weapon that ever goes forth, the word of Christ. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. We certainly see that in salvation, where hearts of stone are pierced with the sword of God's word, the gospel, and they're brought to being hearts of flesh. They're made alive from death. That is the power of the word. It has the power to save. However, we see in this passage that the word doesn't just have the power to save. It has the power to slay. In light of the coming king, the king offers us two options. Be saved by the word or be slain by the word. The king is coming. In his coming, the righteous will be relieved, but the wicked will be repaid for all of their iniquity. And then lastly in this battle, note that upon their execution, the enemies of God... Their bodies are left open. No burial, no words, just open bodies for the birds to feast on. And this is the sign of the most shameful death you could possibly experience. All the birds were gorged with their flesh. Did you know that Revelation 19 is a chapter of feasts? Earlier in Revelation 19, starting with verse 6, we see what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And the marriage supper of the Lamb is a wondrous feast. It's the feast that involves great blessing, great joy, and great celebration. It's when the bride of Christ, the church, eats with her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful feast. But the other feast that we see in this passage is our passage this morning, the great supper of God. And this feast involves judgment, sorrow, and total destruction. It is the wicked being executed for their rebellion to the king. In their death, their bodies lay open for the birds to feast on, an image picturing a shameful death with no burial, no honor. In the marriage supper of the lamb, the righteous enjoy a feast, but in this great supper of God, the wicked are the feast. History ends with two feasts. Make sure you're at the right one. And there is only one invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that's this, the gospel. It's the gospel. And the gospel is that Christ is the king. You and I are the treasonous criminals, but in love, the king became a subject and took the execution that we deserve for our treason and for our treachery. And the king didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead forever proclaiming that he truly is king over all. And today, the king summons criminals to become Christians. Today, the king invites you to no longer be his enemy, but to dine at his table as children of God. Today, the king calls you to repent of your sins and to declare your allegiance to him. Listen to the invitation of Psalm in verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This invitation assures us that those who rage against the king will perish in the king's wrath. But those who kiss the son, who kiss Christ, who honor his return and his reign, they will be blessed in the king's delight. Scripture promises, blessed are all who take refuge in him. To kiss the son is to bestow the highest honor upon him. So this Christmas season, bring out the mistletoe because it's time to kiss the sun. Give him the highest honor. This is a loving call to all the nations to submit to the king. You must do this. You must do this. The king is coming. It's time to exchange your weapons for worship. The king is coming. It's time to put off defiance and put on devotion. The king is coming. It's time to lay down your sword and pick up your songs. The king is coming. It's time to trade your bow for a bow. The king is coming. Some of you still may be struggling to see how this Jesus can be who he is declared to be in the Old Testament and in his incarnation, the Prince of Peace. But I want to assure you this morning that this picture of Jesus in Revelation 19 is in complete alignment with the entirety of Scripture that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And I want to show you how by first asking you a question. How can Jesus be the Prince of Peace if he does not deal with those who cause unrest upon the earth? 
How can Jesus be the Prince of Peace if he does not do away with those who bring wickedness and unrest upon the earth? And in Revelation 19, we see the full picture. The Prince of Peace himself puts away with those who bring about wickedness and unrest on the earth. And in his return, the coming king looks at those who cause unrest and says, enough unrest, enough anguish, enough rebelling against me, enough afflicting my people, enough. Therefore, Revelation 19 does not conflict with the Prince of Peace title. It completes it. It completes it because Jesus puts away with all of those who cause unrest upon the earth. This is a sure consummation. Therefore, we have great reason to rejoice. Have hope. The king is coming. One of the hardest things to do in our times of suffering is to express confidence in Christ's victory and in his deliverance and in his reign and his, in his return. And I was just with a dear brother in the Lord and he's really going through a lot of health trials. In fact, he showed me a 19-page PDF of itemized issues, all of these health things that he's going through. And he did that so that we could pray together and so that we could look to the king, so that we could look to the king who comes, that when we see him, we will be made like him. Brother, you won't have this body forever. It's going away. We will have a new body that worships Christ fully in spirit and truth. But in light of this example of suffering, it's a strong temptation to forget the victory we have in Christ. But I want to encourage you this morning, when you face trials, the greatest thing you can do is declare the king is coming. When you feel alone, the greatest thing you can do is declare, the king is coming. When you are witnessing to your friends and family this Christmas season, the best thing you can do is declare, the king is coming. When you feel defeated, the best thing you can do is declare, the king is coming. This Christmas season, be reminded of our king. Be reminded that he's no longer a baby in a manger. He is a conquering king. And this Christmas season, be reminded that the greatest gift was not wrapped in paper. It was wrapped in burial cloth and opened in power on the third day. The greatest gift we have is the king. So in closing, the return of the king means that you and I have got to concede to the coming Christ. We have got to confess the inward criminal and we've got to celebrate the sure consummation. Will the king receive your full allegiance? He should. He should. He's the king. And for those of you who are struggling in this fallen world, endure. Look to the king. Faithfully press in to Christ. He is faithful. And have hope. The king is coming. Amen? Let's pray. Hey, yeah, amen. Yeah, let's. Let's pray. God, we just confess you right now as king. God, we just confess that you are king and Lord over all. And God, we praise you that you don't allow wickedness and those who bring about unrest upon the earth to trample this fallen world forever. But God, you will come again. Your son, the king, will come to have the nations as his inheritance. 
and to bless all who take refuge in him. God, I pray for every single one of my friends here this morning that you would stir in their heart right now complete allegiance to the King, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that this King would instill great hope in our hearts for today. Your King reigns now and he will reign bodily here on this earth. And Lord, we look so forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, I pray that this Christmas season we will not give prey to temptation, to forsaking your son, to materialism, to looking at stuff. But God, may we look at the Savior, the Savior and savor his return and his coming again. We confess right now that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, King Jesus. All God's people said, amen.